Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we open up your word and tread on holy ground, knowing that when your word is opened, you speak. And so, Father, grant your servant clarity, correctness, conviction, because this is your word, compassion, because I am a broken man preaching to broken sinners, saved by grace. And Father, help us to apply these truths to our hearts and lives, that we would be people who would respond to your word as doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Our text for this morning is Titus chapter 3 verse 8. But I want to read verses 1 through 8 just to kind of remind us of the context a little bit especially pertinent this morning as we look at verse 8 to look at what came before. Titus 3 verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. I have heroes in the faith that have helped shape my thinking over the 20-something years that I've been walking with the Lord. Some of those are dead guys, dead uh, men of the Lord who have now gone home to be with the Lord, who have written great works that have helped really shape my thinking, and to one extent or another, uh, their example uh, via their writing was key for me in my own maturity as a believer. And I also have heroes that are live heroes. Some of them are even in this church men who have taught me many things and have helped shape uh, my thinking on many issues and been an example to me. And I have live heroes also in foreign countries, men who I spend time with in third world countries who maybe most of us would never hear from, uh, but they are to me men who have really had an impact, a profound impact upon my life. And one of them is a man by the name of, I refer to him as Pastor Castillo. He is a pastor in the Dominican Republic, and the first time that I met Pastor Castillo many, many years ago, you would not have thought that this little man would be so mighty in the Lord, just based upon his external appearance. But the more that I got to know him a few years ago, and I began to ask him questions about his ministry that he was doing in the Dominican and in Haiti, in the Caribbean, the more I realized that this was a man who was mighty in the Lord. Um, He has been engaged in some capacity or another in planting multiple churches in the Dominican and Haiti and in other places. He has been responsible, especially in the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake a few years ago, to uh, found many orphanages for children who lost their parents and families and all of that. And these are now church-supported orphanages, especially in Haiti. 
I mean, I was just astounded by this man. But you would never know that he's done all of those things because he's such a humble man. And uh, I got to see him again at the Shepherds Conference recently and spend some time with him just hearing about what the Lord is doing and just being um, just energized again by this man who is 35 years older than me. And at one time he asked me as we were getting ready to say goodbye to each other, Kempis, when are you going to come back to the Dominican Republic in Haiti? And I said, Pastor Castillo, I would love to, just making sure that I'm, I'm healthy. And he says, hey, and he said this in Spanish, he said, if you come, remember we are there to serve you. I am your siervo. I'm your servant, he said. I mean, I should be saying that to this man. And yet that's the kind of heart that he has. And I think it struck me at the Shepherds Conference in the aftermath of that more than ever before that the reason why I respect this man and I look to him so much as an example is not because of all of the other accomplishments. He would say that those are all an act of the grace of God. He's just a servant. But it's precisely that issue, that self title that he gives himself often that is astounding to me and that impresses me, that he views himself as a servant of Christ. That is how Jesus defined greatness, didn't he? He who desires to be great among you shall be last of all and servant of all. Let me repeat that again. Let me ask you that again. He who desires to be great among you shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus defined greatness in that way. And I think Pastor Castillo views himself as a man who has been saved by the grace of God and he has been saved to serve Christ. Saved to serve Christ. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Our text in Titus chapter 3 verse 8 really functions as a bookend to chapter 3 verse 1 where if you remember in verse 1 of chapter 3 Paul instructs Titus to remind these Christians about their responsibilities, their loving responsibilities as believers in an ungodly society to the governing authorities as well as to the church at large. And then those loving responsibilities are then backed and supported by the gospel that he articulates in verses 3 through 7. In other words, the reason they are to conduct themselves in a Christ-like manner before the governing authorities and the world at large is because of what God has done for them. Because of the grace of God. The gospel is the foundation for their godly living. And the gospel is the foundation for our godly living. This is a point that he makes also in chapter 2, verse 11, if you remember, where he, after nine verses of instructing various groups in the church as to how they are to conduct themselves in a godly way. He then says in chapter 2, verse 11, Why are you to conduct yourself this way? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. How has He appeared? We know that it was, it was in history, in the very person and work of Jesus coming to earth in His humanity. You are to conduct yourself in a godly way, is his point, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So there's this back and forth from our responsibilities as the people of God in the church toward one another and in society, but then the motivation or the basis for why we should live this way, in a nutshell, it is the gospel. And the point should be clear to us. The gospel, beloved, shapes and frames everything that we do in this life. The gospel instructs, informs, and tempers our outlook on things such as marriage, our marriage, our singleness, 
our parenting, our conduct in our jobs and perspective about our job, about how we live in a world progressively hostile to God and His gospel. And see, as Christians, we don't adopt the world's mindset and perspective or the world's methodologies. Who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, above any other identity marker that we can come up with, who we are in Jesus shapes all that we do. Everything that we do. So we've been reminded of that, and we're going to be reminded of that anew this morning. And we've also been reminded that we have a mission in this world then. And that is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been saved, beloved, to serve Christ in this world. To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, and listen to this, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Romans chapter 14, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, speaking to believers here, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. See, we used to live for ourselves and for sin. Paul made this point in chapter 3, verse 3. But now, because of the mercy and the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God, we have been saved from sin to serve Jesus Christ. Now what's difficult is that there's so much in our life, in this world, to bombard us and to make us busy so that we lose perspective on what is important as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So how important to um, be thinking about uh, how we might effectively and meaningfully in this world serve Christ in a manner that we are displaying His glory to a lost world. We need to be thinking about that. And so from Paul's instruction to Titus, here in chapter 3 and verse 8, I want to extract three essential ingredients of a Christ-exalting, faithful witness in the world. As Paul instructs Titus, we can glean these. And I'm going to give them to you up front. They are gospel conviction, gospel proclamation, and gospel fruitfulness. As I said, we, if we're going to serve Christ, it is very easy to lose perspective. To get busy, and before you know it, we forget what's most important in our service of Christ. So how might we carry out our service in a faithful way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth? These are three essential ingredients of a Christ-exalting, faithful witness in the world. First of all, gospel conviction. Gospel conviction. You must hold firmly to the gospel as the core conviction of your life. What is a conviction? It's a belief that guides and directs you, that frames everything that you do, that grants you perspective, that you are willing to give your life for. That is a conviction, a true conviction. You're willing to pay the price for it. Do you have those? May I submit to you that as a believer, your most significant core conviction should be that the gospel is everything. Everything. And if you want to have a Christ-exalting, faithful witness in the world where you are displaying Jesus to, uh, to the world, the gospel must be your conviction. 
above anything else. It is the framework or the glasses, if you will, through which you view everything. Look at verse 8. Paul says to Titus, this is a trustworthy statement. Literally, faithful the word or faithful the message. What is he talking about, this trustworthy statement? Well, he's pointing back to verses 3 through 7, which speak of, the, of our salvation in Jesus Christ. If you look back in verse 3, we were shown how all of us are in this desperate predicament called sin, pursuing a course of sin and destined for the wrath of God. That's what that lifestyle in verse 3 was, is going, was going to lead us to. And yet in verses 4 through 7, Paul articulates the gospel by which God stepped in to, to perform a rescue operation for us. Why? Because we were worthy or because of our deeds? No, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, because of His kindness, His love, His grace, His unmerited favor, undeserved favor and blessing shown to us. And it was all through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in verse 6. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were going to inherit eternal condemnation. We were children of wrath. But now, at the end of verse 7, it said that if we are following Jesus, we have been given the hope which consists of eternal life. Quality of life in the present and quality of life forever. This, Paul says in verse 8, this salvation is a trustworthy statement. In fact, most believe that this statement, this is a trustworthy statement, belongs to the end of verse 7. And I agree, I agree with that. So that Paul is saying, trustworthy, faithful, is the message of the gospel in verses 3 through 7, which saves people. In other words, this gospel by which God saves sinners, God has saved you from His just punishment through, through Jesus, is trustworthy. It's faithful. You can bank your life on it. It refers to a self-evident truth. A truth that doesn't need to be defended. Doesn't need to be proven. It is obvious. It is an irrefutable statement to be affirmed and believed for, for Christians. In fact, some say that, 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 that verses 4 through 7 might have been a hymn that the early church sung or a creedal statement already that Christians affirmed in the early church. We don't know for sure, but that could, could have been the case. In either case, Paul is saying the gospel by which God saves is a trustworthy statement. I bank my whole life on the gospel of God. And Titus, you are to do the same thing as well. And you are to teach the people as well that they have to have this gospel that saves as the conviction of their lives so that it would shape and motivate everything that they do. It's a trustworthy, faithful, reliable statement is this gospel. And beloved, if we are to have a Christ-exalting, faithful witness in this world where we display Jesus, we must hold firmly to the gospel as the firm conviction of our lives so that everything that we do is, is tempered and informed and instructed by the very gospel of Jesus Christ. See, for some of us, this is very foreign or has become very foreign. Maybe at one point when you were saved, the gospel was everything to you. And you, couldn't, you were chomping at the bits to go tell people about Jesus and what God had done for you in Jesus Christ. But over the years, you've become cold and indifferent to the gospel. You've been around the church for a long time that you now assume the gospel. It's just there. Or it's an afterthought. It's this short little footnote to your busy life, to your life story. 
It's just this little subsection somewhere in there in your life story. For others of us, we get so caught up in other mini missions in this world, secondary pursuits, and the gospel, rather than central, has taken the back seat. It is no longer relevant to those things that you are wrestling with in life. It is no longer as critical as it once was to everything. Where the center and the circumference of everything in your life was the gospel. No more. Yet others of us get involved in important and necessary causes in this life. But we fail to recognize, listen to me, that all of those endeavors, while important and needed, in and of themselves, without the framework of the gospel, are short-sighted and superficial solutions because they don't address the problem of sin in the human heart and all of the evils that flow from sin. The gospel shapes our perspective on all kinds of things in life. Without it, things just don't make sense. And worse, there is no hope if we strip those things of the gospel. The reason why things are the way that they are, beloved, is because we live in a sin-cursed world that is broken because of our human rebellion. Why are people hateful? Because of sin. Only Jesus Christ, the center person of the gospel, is one that can change the heart so that, so that people come to love God and love one another instead of being hateful toward one another. Why are people murderous towards one another, taking lives, including babies, and engaged in child trafficking? Why are they doing that? Because of sin. And only Jesus and the gospel can address at the core, at the root of the human, the depraved human heart, the issue of not valuing life. Only the gospel addresses that. And why we should protect human life. Why are people redefining marriage between one man and woman? Because of sin. And only Christ changes people so that they are reminded that marriage is God's design between one man and one woman. And no one has a right to change that because no one is above God who designed marriage between one man and one woman. The gospel of Jesus Christ addresses that. Why are people prejudiced and racists in our country and even infiltrates into the church? Actively or passively. You would think that after so much that has happened in our country and all over the world, we would have learned something by now, but we still have a difficult time seeing everybody as equal in our country. Why is that the case? Because of sin. Sin. And we forget that the gospel addresses that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. An implication of the gospel is that Jesus, who is the great peacemaker, has brought all kinds of groups from every tongue, nation, tribe together to be one in Christ. We are one people. There's one human race. And no matter what, what race, for the sake of conversation, you belong to, or what ethnic background you have, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one. And we are called to, to relish and treasure that oneness in Jesus Christ, and at the same time celebrate our beautiful, marvelous diversity in Jesus Christ. 
The gospel addresses that. Jesus, the great peacemaker, has come to make peace between all of those, regardless of tongue, nation, tribe, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We are one. Called to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why is our government so foolish often? Perverse and authoritarian, punishing what is right while rewarding evildoers because of sin. But in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, we remember that one day Jesus, our King, is coming to deliver the final death blow. And we will be with him in a new heavens and a new earth where all righteousness dwells. And Jesus only does justice and justice prevails. The gospel is our framework through which we see everything in our, in our society. Everything. Why is there poverty and hunger in the world? Listen to me. I worked for six years with a nonprofit organization focused through the local church on, on feeding people in foreign countries, especially who were poverty stricken people. I'll tell you this. There is not poverty and hunger exist in the world, not because God has not put enough food in this world, but because people are greedy. Governments exploit people. People are sinners who sin against others and withhold what is good from others. Sin is the reason why that exists. Why are there problems in our marriages, in our families, in our parenting, in the church? Because of sin. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are reminded that marriage is to be a beautiful picture of Christ and the church, so that we ought to be fleshing that out in our marriages. See, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great framework, the great meta-narrative through which we understand everything, any other little story or any other endeavor or pursuit or cause in life must be seen through the very glasses and the lenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there is no hope and anything that we pursue is short-sighted and superficial because it doesn't deal with the root cause, which is sin and all the evils that proceed from sin. Christ is to be elevated. Christ is to be exalted. Christ is to be preached. The word of the cross is, is, is the only thing that is ultimately and definitively able to deal with all of those things of social injustice, abortion, same-sex marriage. All of the evils of our society are dealt in a definitive way by the gospel of Jesus Christ in the human heart. In the human heart. So all of these and an array of other examples are a manifestation of human depravity. Of human depravity. Let me ask you, is the gospel the framework through which you see all of life? In other words, do you hold firmly to the gospel as the core conviction of your life so that it shapes everything that you do and how you serve the Lord Jesus Christ in your home, in the church, out in society? Ask yourself that hard question today. Or is it secondary? Is it minute? Is it assumed in your life? Or do you live out its implications as well? If it is your core conviction, then secondly, the second ingredient of a Christ-exalting faithful witness will be evident, which is gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. You must be committed to proclaiming the gospel and the life that is consistent with the gospel, which is what Paul has instructed Titus again and again and again to preach. It begins from the top down. And Paul in verse 8 says to Titus, Titus, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. What things, Paul? 
Well, everything that he has said for all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 2 until now, both the gospel message and the conduct that flows from the gospel that the gospel produces. He essentially did the same thing in chapter 2, verse 15, if you notice with me. In 2.15, he says to Titus, These things, Titus, i.e. the life that I just instructed, and the gospel that motivates that life, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The same thing here. He says, These things, the conduct of believers before governing authorities and in the world at large, Speak those things and what motivates that conduct, namely verses 3 through 7, the grace of God working in their hearts and lives. The fact that God has saved them, both the message and the conduct that follows. Titus is to continually proclaim the gospel and the godly life that flows from the gospel. Notice in verse 8, confidently, which means persistently, continually, thoroughly, with a sense of urgency, he is to do this. Why? Because only the gospel changes lives, beloved. Only the gospel changes lives. In the gospel, we come to understand that we are sinners who have offended a holy and just God, our creator, and that we will be punished for our sin, not only on this earth, but for forever and ever and ever. Eternally separated from God. But what has God done? Shown to us in verses 4 through 7, isn't it? He sent his beloved son into the world. To die in the place of sinners on the cross so that you, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, can be saved. Committing your life to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God, your maker. Only the gospel transforms lives. And this wonderful gospel is what makes all the difference in the world, right? This is why Titus is to proclaim the gospel and its implications for the Christian life. Because if we really understand the gospel's power, we are going to live quite differently on this earth. Quite differently. See, so many of us would affirm the power of the gospel, but I wonder how many of us live that out. How many of us affirm the power of the gospel, but how many of us are committed to actually sharing and proclaiming the gospel? How many of us are actually doing that? When was the last time you actually personally shared the gospel with someone that you know or don't know? When was the last time you shared the gospel with your unbelieving spouse? When was the last time you shared the gospel with your kids, young or older? When was the last time you reached out to your neighbor and you shared the message of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you shared with a coworker? about Christ and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. I understand that some of you are in very difficult situations as far as the workplace and you're not allowed to do that. I get that. Others of us use that as an excuse. And we don't share our faith. Not only the gospel message, but when was the last time as an implication of this text, an application of it, when was the last time you let, you actually came alongside of another brother or sister in the Lord in the context of the church about how the gospel encourages holiness in their lives? Maybe they're in sin. Maybe they're struggling with something. When was the last time you came alongside of them to talk to them about the fact that Jesus has saved them so that they might be holy, so that they need to turn from that sin and continue to seek to be holy people? When was the last time that you did that both the message and the implications of the gospel message the holiness the holy life that flows from it is our responsibility beloved 
to be gospel proclaimers. See, if we really believe in Romans 1.16, that the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, then we need to be sharing the gospel every chance that we get. And many of us do not take God's divine appointments to share the gospel and those opportunities that He brings to our lives very seriously. We simply ignore them. We're too busy to share the gospel with Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. Too busy. I mean, imagine if you had the cure for the great sickness of cancer to cure everyone who is dying of cancer in this world. Imagine that. Would you keep it to yourself? Would you keep it to yourself? If you had the ability to to relieve that suffering from everybody on this earth, would you share that information? course we would we wouldn't hold it to ourselves that would be selfish and that would be unloving for us not to share that right and yet we have as christians the cure for sin and the ultimate end of all of sin's evils and we don't deliver the message that has the power to deliver people from sin the gospel of jesus christ second corinthians chapter 5 Verses 17 and following says that we as believers have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You know what is your primary ministry here on this earth? You are a minister of God, an ambassador for the king. And we are called to come alongside of people and tell them, you need to be reconciled to God, your maker. And here is how. That is our responsibility. To call people to be reconciled to God. And many of us are not doing that. We're not sharing the gospel. We are not committed to gospel proclamation. And in not being committed to gospel proclamation, we show, point number one, how the gospel really isn't our core conviction. Or if it is, we're not living it out in the power of the Spirit of God. So we have been saved to serve Christ in this world. But if we're going to serve Him in a way that honors Him and that is faithful in displaying Him to the world, then we need to, first of all, hold firmly to the gospel as our driving conviction. Secondly, be committed to sharing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we must strive for gospel fruitfulness. We must strive for gospel fruitfulness. Listen, when Christ is everything to us, then we will not be Christians who are passive, Christians who are stagnant, Christians who are oblivious or indifferent to the needs of others, beginning with those in the church, as well as people in society. We will be people who will be actively engaged because God wants us, beloved, to be fruitful people. See, our Heavenly Father is so thankful that you as a Christian, if you are genuinely His child, are, have been adopted into His family. He loves you. He's given you an inheritance. Verse 7, eternal life. He loves the fact that you are a part of His family, but He wants you to be a productive child. He wants you to obey Him out of love and gratitude for Him for what He's done because of the grace of God, His grace shown in your life. He wants you to be fruitful. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Couldn't be clearer, right? In 
Colossians chapter 1, Paul is praying for the Colossians, and he, one of the things that he prays for in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, is that these believers would continually be bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. Saying, I'm praying for you guys that you guys would be fruitful believers. Why? Because God desires that his children would be productive people who do good. Listen to Galatians 6.10. So then, writing to Christians, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, and especially to those of the household of the faith. Christians and non-Christians. Can I tell you this? Christians who have been saved by the grace of God more than any other people on this earth are to be devoted to doing good. We are positioned because of the power of God working from our very, the very core of our souls to actually flesh out genuine, spirit-empowered love toward other people. As believers... And this is a drum that Paul has beat again and again throughout this letter where he has repeatedly emphasized the urgent need to be devoted to doing good. He has said in chapter 1 verse 8 that elders are to be those kinds of men that are lovers of good. And Titus is included in that. So that in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul instructs Titus that one of the ways that he is to do good to the congregation in contrast to the false teachers who are doing evil to the people of God, he is to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And in that way, Titus is doing good to the congregation. And then throughout the book of Titus, all Christians are to be doing good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Titus chapter 3, verse 14. All point to the urgency of Christians saved by the power of God to be doing good. Adorning the doctrine of God our Savior by their good works. And here in chapter 3, verse 8. Notice. Why is Titus to persist in teaching these things? So that, here's the purpose, those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Notice he does not say, those who have believed in God, in the original. Many people believe in God, but they don't do what he says. Or, he's a God with a little g of their own imagination, who places no demands upon their lives and allows them essentially to rule themselves. He's got no stake upon their lives. And they show that their God is no better than a cosmic genie who exists for them and awaits their next order. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'll do whatever you want. That is no God of Scripture right there. No God of Scripture. He says in verse 8, those who have believed God... He uses here a a perfect tense verb. And a perfect tense verb basically refers to a a past completed action with the results continuing into the present time. Think about that. So that this can be translated, those who are in the state of having believed God. In other words, they have believed God in the past, God our Savior, but in the present they are living out the implications or the results of that belief in God. In other words, they are believers. They are Christians. And they live trusting God. They are those who believe God. They take Him at His word. They desire to do what He says because of what He has done for them through Jesus Christ. Oh, Paul says, Titus, persist in speaking the gospel and the implications of the gospel. Why? So that those who have believed God, i.e. Christians, may be careful to engage in good deeds. Please pay attention, beloved. 
Christians, that what this text is telling us is that Christians should not be stagnant, passive spectators in the church, but active participants devoted to good deeds. If you don't have any passion or desire, even within your struggles to be that type of a person in the church, to do good to others as a pattern of life, you have some self-examination to do. Because it could be that the Spirit of God is not working in your heart and life in a saving way. Therefore, you do not even desire these things. Because the believer desires to do good, desires to be committed to to good deeds, out of love and gratitude to God, even in our struggles, and even though we we will struggle with selfishness, and we will get preoccupied, and we will go after secondary things above people's needs, the genuine believer would always return to want to do what is right and to want to be obedient and to be engaged in good deeds. Otherwise, there's a problem with your heart. And I say that because I love and care for you and for the state of your soul. So what he says here is persist in speaking these things, verse 8, that they may be careful to engage in good deeds. It means to be intent on, to ponder or consider carefully how to engage in good deeds. You know what it's speaking about? A commitment of a preoccupation with considering and meeting the needs of other people who are the recipients of our good deeds. Paul is saying, listen, Titus, God's people need to get busy doing good works, serving Jesus Christ. Persist on it. Remind them of the gospel that drives that, that fuels that, the engine behind those good works and those good deeds. It's the gospel, the saving work of God. Persist in that. That no one disregard you, he said in 2.15. And I pray that there's no one in here this morning disregarding not me, but the word of God. That you will make it your habitual business to consider how you might do good for other people. And that takes thought and consideration and engagement with the body of Christ and being involved so that you are familiar with people and who they are and where they're at in life so that you can come alongside of them spiritually, socially, relationally, physically. In, a, in very tangible ways. That takes relationship. That takes being around, actively participating in the body of Christ. And please pay attention. God's word does not call us to serve Christ only if we fall into the category of, of a radical, committed, spiritually elite Christian. That does not exist. And yet we act that way sometimes. As if there's categories of Christians. Listen, there aren't categories of Christians. You are either a Christian or you're not a Christian. That's it. You're either on the path following Jesus, striving for a Christ-exalting perspective to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and living that out within even your struggles by the grace of God, or you're a non-Christian who has rejected the risen, ascended, exalted Christ, the King of the universe. God's Word does not call us to serve Christ only if we have time or feel like serving Him. If I feel like it, I'll do it. He has saved you to serve Him. Not just to deliver you from hell and condemnation. 
He has saved you to serve him in this life. He's given you a mission to make disciples. And yes, this is going to look different for each of us, given our spiritual gifting and abilities that God has given us and our experiences. And yes, there will be seasons of life when we're older or younger, where our service to the Lord will look different, beloved. But we who are believers have all been rescued from serving sin to now serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You either serve the master sin who says, give, 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 and doesn't deliver in the end? Or you serve Christ who gives you everything and even makes you a co-heir with him in the eternal kingdom. See, the problem is not that we lack what we need. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 to see this. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 is just a great text. Peter, writing to Christians, says this in 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a special gift. He says, all of you, each and every one of you, have received a special gift. That is a grace gift, by the way. God, by His grace, has not only saved believers, but or saved people, but He has given you a set of spiritual gifts. They are grace gifts, meaning that you don't deserve them. You didn't ask for them. He gave you a set or a package of gifting As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another, which by by implication means that there are people, some people, if he has to instruct them this way, that don't employ it, right? That don't put it to use. Like a household servant who who doesn't serve his master, but is living there and, and receives all of the rights and privileges and all of that of hospitality from his master, but he doesn't serve his master. That is what it's like for a believer, a Christian, who has been given spiritual gifts and does not serve Jesus with those gifts. How shameful is that, isn't it? They are grace gifts. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward was a household manager in charge of all of his his, uh, master's uh, possessions, was to work for his master's profit says, you are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given you these giftings because of his unmerited favor shown toward you. Use those gifts. He says, employ them in serving other people. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And notice, why do we serve? For personal accolades, so that we get positions in the church. So that people think, how, oh, how great spiritual person you are. No. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all of God's people say, Amen. We've been given gifts, beloved, so that we would use them to serve one another, to build the body of Christ up. And all of it is for the glory of God the Father, through Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Amen. Now, I may, be miss, I may be missing something, but this text and no other text in Scripture tells me that some of us as Christians have been given the short end of the stick. What this text tells me in, in 1 Corinthians 12-14, which also deals with spiritual gifts, and Ephesians chapter 4, which says that 4 verses 1-16 through 16 speaks about the exalted Christ giving each believer a measure of his gifting, each and every believer... I may be missing something, but those passages tell me that every single one of us have gifts. And so what's the problem? What's the problem? Are you actively 
participating in the body of Christ so that you are using your gifts for the edification, the building up, that's what edification means, of the body of Christ to the glory of God the Father. You see, the issue is not that you don't have what you need to serve Christ, but that some of you are being flat-out disobedient to the, the, the uh, absence of the use of your gifts for the glory of God. You're being disobedient to the Lord. You're a household manager that is receiving all of the benefits as a Christian, if you are a true believer, that is. All of the benefits of God, include, beginning with salvation, and you, are, you have become selfish, And more than disobedience, let me tell you this. You are not walking in love. You're not walking in love for God and love for others. That's one of the points made in in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where all of the spiritual gifts are to be used ultimately for the building up of others, motivated by love for one another. Love. So to not serve in the church, to not serve Christ by the use of your gifts, is to not only be disobedient to the Lord, which is serious enough, but you are not practicing love to the Lord or love to, for your brethren. Some of us have a love deficiency problem. We need to ask God to help us to love Him more. Help us to love our brethren more. That we not treat the church like a spa. Right? Some of us treat the church like a spa. What do you do at a spa? You pay a fee for certain services. And you sit back. You close your eyes. They pamper you with special attire. Maybe you, you cross your arms and you start sleeping or dozing off and you wait till the people at the spa serve you, right? And they pamper you with all of the needs that you have because you've given your fee. As long as you pay the fee, give me, give me the product, man. The church is not a spa. Stop treating it like that. The church is a living, vibrant organism comprised of many members. That's why I love the metaphor, the body of Christ as equals the church, because it sends the message to us that every member, every member of your body, physically speaking, think about it, every member is indispensable and important, isn't it? If I chop off my thumb right now, am I going to have a reaction? Oh, yeah, it's indispensable. I need it. I can get more gruesome, but I won't, right? But the metaphor is important, isn't it? Every member in the body of Christ is indispensable, important. And listen to me, if you do not function at a high capacity by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, using your gifts and abilities that God has given you, somewhere the body of Christ is suffering. Somewhere. And that is not very loving of you. Without one member doing his or her part somewhere, the body suffers. And, and we won't know for the most part. But God knows. God knows. Don't treat this church like a, the church like a spa. Your attitude should not be when you come to church on Sunday mornings to use an example. What can people do for me? How can I be entertained? What am I going to enjoy about this service? And what am I going to critique? Right? The worship service is not a theater act here. We're here to worship Christ. He is the one that we come to magnify. 
Don't come into the church thinking, what can people do for me? How can people serve me? How can people entertain me? But rather think this way as a believer. What can I do for others? How can I serve my brother and sister in Christ? How can I reach out to a non-believer who is amongst us? How can I show them the grace of Christ? Think of it in these terms. How can I be Christ to someone today? How can I be Jesus to someone today? Give them a picture or a portrait of something about my Lord. Display Christ to them. That should be our attitude. Now listen, with all this talk about good deeds, please hear me. Our good deeds don't save us. They're not meritorious, right? Paul has made that very clear. Chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It is not by works. Chapter 3, verse 5. It's by the love and grace and kindness and, and, and goodness of God through Jesus Christ that, saves, that salvation comes. Our good works add nothing to us as far as meritoriously, so that we might be saved from our sins. Salvation is by grace through faith in in the person and work of Jesus alone. And even as Christians, if you are a Christian, we don't do good deeds because we are trying to somehow get God to love us more. Oh, Father, you don't love me enough. God's love is a perfect love, not like our love. Or, Lord, I'm doing this to be on good terms with you. No, we don't do it for that. R. Ken Hughes writes this, Our duties never garner grace, but the doctrines of grace lead to the duties of gratitude. True godliness flows from love of and for God. See, our good works as believers, Allah, Titus, are in response to the love and the gracious hand of God in our lives, right? His mercy. It's the difference between the root and the fruit, isn't it? The root of our salvation is Christ's person and atoning work alone. The fruit are those good deeds that are produced by the Holy Spirit that has come to indwell us and empower us to do those good deeds. Amen? That's the difference. I'm talking to you who are believers. Obviously, if you are not a Christian, the first thing you need to do is come to Christ. Acknowledge that you are a sinner who falls short of God's perfect standard, who needs God's forgiveness, who needs to be reconciled to God, your Creator. And receive the gift of forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ alone, with an empty hand of faith saying, God, there is nothing that I have to offer you, no good work. I am receiving the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation of salvation found only in your Son with an empty hand of faith. That's how we come to Him. Salvation has been secured and can be received by faith in Jesus for some of you who have not given your lives to Christ. If you're a Christian, then what this passage is essentially telling us and throughout in the book of Titus is that our response to God's salvation is to live as lights in this world, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect so that we are displaying Christ to the world. Reminded of the words in the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are called to do good deeds, to be fruitful in our good works. Why? So that we might bring glory to God. That we may bring glory to God and that people may ask, what 
is the reason for the hope that is in you, the way that you live, your attitude. And even when you sin and you struggle, you come and ask for forgiveness. What's that all about, man? Well, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you, were it not for His grace, I don't know where I would be. We're called to be fruitful in doing good works. Now, some of you ask, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, first of all, in our home. That's the first place that we ought to be practicing good works if we're believers, right? What does that look like? Well, in our marriages, we ought to be loving and serving one another in our marriages. We should not have the attitude towards our spouse. What have you done for me lately? Right? So that then we are driven to serve our spouse. Especially for us who are men, we are to be leading by serving our wives. It begins there, between the little things. Changing a diaper, right? Oh, don't go there. Come on, brother. Doing the little things to serve one another. Those things display Christ. You're being Christ to your wife, aren't you? Same thing for wives. Serving your husband, doing good deeds for your husband. Why? As unto the Lord, not because he deserves it. Not because he needs to work for those things. You serve him as unto the Lord, ultimately for him. What about towards our kids? Obviously, we serve our kids by pointing them to Jesus and by training them and disciplining them and uh, training them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But we should also serve our children, get to know them and find out how we might meet their needs, even physical needs. So it begins in the home, doesn't it? And then look at the context of the letter, chapter 2. If he's emphasizing good deeds, he did chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, talk about all kinds of different responsibilities for the various groups in the church of how good, what good deeds look like. Pursuing Christ-like characters so that they might invest into one another. So in the church, can I say this to you and remind you yet again, the greatest act of service and mission that you can engage in in the church is life on life Real blood, sweat, and tears, discipleship. Coming alongside of one another, of other believers, to help them grow, to be more like Jesus. And this begins with you who are older and more mature, to make the initiative, to be training up the younger generation. And for us who are younger, notice I include myself in there, not so young anymore, right? Inviting the input of the older into our lives. That's a good work. Pursuing Christ-like character, Titus chapter 2, so that we would be able to invest ourselves into others, disciple others. And then in the church, there are very tangible physical needs, aren't there? There are so many needs in our body. I'm floored. Twice, once, or once in a while, I leave the, the church really late at night. And there are brethren here, beloved, late at night who are cleaning the building, cleaning the facilities. Nobody's seeing that. If I wouldn't have been here late at night, I wouldn't have seen that. They don't care about accolades. They don't care about popularity, but that's what they're doing. Some of you are like that. You don't even need to be seen. You don't want to be on the forefront. You just want to be behind the scenes serving like our sound tech team, constantly giving hours and hours and hours of their time to serve Christ. Like people in our hospitality ministry, in our food ministry, giving hours and hours and hours of their time for all of the wonderful meals that we enjoy. Listen, those are hours of going and getting the food, preparing the food, and then doing the event. And sometimes they don't even get to hear the messages because they are involved in serving people. Oh, you make us look so bad, but I'm so thankful for you people who do that on a continual basis. There's so much in the church to do, isn't there? We also serve Christ in our society. How? How? In the jobs, the secular jobs that we're a part of? 
Listen, you are serving Christ just by merely being there. In the sovereignty of God, God has put you there to be salt and light. And, and with every opportunity that you have, you should strive to speak Jesus or to display Christ through your good works, your work ethic, so that you may bring glory to Jesus and they might ask concerning the hope that is in you and you can share about Christ. We serve in our nation by doing that. Just getting involved in the very context of society, right? In, the, in those various um, uh, um, venues where we're going to interact with non-believers. We serve Christ by speaking truth to key causes in life. Let me be clear. Christians are to be lovingly, hear all the adjectives please, lovingly, graciously, and biblically to be speaking the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel to key areas and social issues of life. Such as what? Sanctity of human life? Abortion? Right? Graciously, lovingly, biblically speaking the truth of the Word of God into those issues? Not in a fleshly way. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Not in a way where we are fleshly, succumbing to the methodologies of the non-believing world, but being shaped and framed by the greater picture, uh, the greater meta narrative of the gospel, that's how we engage things with graciousness and love and with the gospel at the forefront of things that we say. The importance of marriage between one man and one woman, the importance of rejecting same sex marriage. We should be speaking lovingly, graciously, biblically to those issues in whatever opportunity that we have. So issues of social injustice, such as poverty or, or racism in our country, being framed and shaped by the gospel, we should be speaking lovingly, graciously, biblically into those things. Even the need for adoption as a picture of, of how God has adopted us, spiritually speaking, in Jesus Christ, we can show that kind of picture of the gospel by even, so for some of us who are called to this particular beautiful ministry, specifically adopting children from this country or all over the world. Christians should lovingly, graciously, and biblically speak the truth and act out the implications of the gospel in all of these areas. But hear me very clearly. As we do so, and as we even get involved with gospel-centered and Christ-focused organizations that work through the local church and keep the, the gospel at the center to alleviate suffering in all of those areas, may we never, never, never lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without that framework, beloved, all of those situations, no matter how much you give yourself to those things as the core mission of your life, you will be a person who is short-sighted, superficial, and ultimately those things don't deal with the root of the problem, which is sin and all of its evils and manifestations. The gospel is a grand matter narrative, and without gospel lenses, there is no hope with any of those things you understand. No hope! The gospel informs, shapes, instructs, tempers, all of those things. And so as we do good works in, in our homes, in the church, in society, remember that. The priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice, to wrap this up, 
at the end of verse 8, when we serve Christ by doing good, he says, these things, these good works that are an overflow of the gospel are good and profitable for men. Doing good is beneficial and useful for men, by which he means all people, it's plural there, believers and unbelievers. How is this good and profitable for believers that when we do good and serve one another and we're fruitful as believers, the body is built up in love. People are edified, right? They become more and more like Jesus. And then when as Christians we do good in the world to the non-believer, we put Jesus on display for all to see that he is great and mighty and beautiful and that he saves and rescues people from selfish living. So that we, they're watching our lives, that we are giving ourselves to selfless service for mankind. And that magnifies the name of Jesus. And it leads to opportunities and platforms for sharing Christ, right? These things are good and profitable for men. These good works that flow from the gospel are good and profitable for men, believers and unbelievers. We have been saved to serve King Jesus. And if you're going to do it effectively and meaningfully, beloved, hold firmly to the gospel as your core conviction. No other cause as an end in itself, as your final goal. Secondly, be committed to gospel proclamation. And thirdly, strive for gospel fruitfulness. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the fact that we've been left on this earth to serve King Jesus, to make disciples, to evangelize and edify our brethren for your glory. Pray that we might be diligent in doing that and that we would do it all as a response of gratitude and love for all that you have done for us, Lord. Oh, Lord, not only have you saved us, but oh, how you have given us eternal life in this present day to have a relationship with you. We, we, we have a foretaste of eternal life already in our relationship with you and that we have not been left alone and hopeless in the midst of a wicked world, Lord. We have hope beyond this world. So we say, come, Lord Jesus. May he come and establish his kingdom here on this earth, a new heavens and a new earth where, Lord, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice, We will reign with Jesus and righteousness will reign as well. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.